Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat, and a uh, shout-out to that motorcycle that just went roaring by my uh, apartment. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. And we have a special guest. Uh, hi, it's me, Chris Kohler, features editor at Kotaku, frequent guest on podcasts such as this uh, and Retronauts, uh, and, uh, you know, other things. Author of the book Final Fantasy V from Boss Fight Books, which is about Super Nintendo role-playing games. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think we had you on to talk about that book, right? I uh, Probably. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, we did, because actually, um, I forget what panel I was on. I was on like five panels at PAX, and I actually gave your book a shout-out at one of those panels. Yay, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's a great book. Thanks. That's totally something that we would do is have you on the show to talk about your book. Uh, but yeah, yes. no, we brought on Chris Kohler uh, for a related reason, which is that this is the week that we are doing the Super Nintendo console quest. It's time, folks. And then after this, like, we're, we're done. Like, we're talking about the end all and be all of console RPG or RPG consoles. Uh, we don't have to go any further than that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, forget the PlayStation, and no one cares. <laughs> Screw you, Xbox. <laughs> um, poor Xbox, it tries. Poor Xbox. Sad, sad Xbox. Also, uh, Chris reviewed the Sega Genesis Mini, <laughs> so we're going to have a little bit of console war fun and things like that. But Love it. Uh, Love the console y- wars. Yeah, mm. no, it's right back to the 16-bit era. I thought they were going to make a movie out of that. 25 years, and I still make money talking about the console <laughs> wars, 1990s. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Do you have your scars? Do you show all the kids your battle scars? Uh, yes, yeah. I, I, I've spoken to my son and let him know that I am, in fact, a veteran of the console wars. Excellent. And, um, yeah, we get it. We get a military discount, though, at the... <laughs> I wish at, at Cracker Barrel, so it's great. <laughs> Cracker Barrel. What's really remarkable about the console wars, and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but uh, this was before the era of social media and you know message boards or really any online discourse whatsoever. So for us to be for it to be that intense and for us to be that aware of it, it like it's it was truly a remarkable thing. It was. Um, of course, there's the whole playground element, but also I got on the internet very early through my school's BBS. Uh, so we we were fighting about, like, uh, just to let you know what kind of a place it was, now people, how spoiled people were back then. I distinctly remember fights about how Chrono Trigger was, like, not nearly as good as Final Fantasy VI, and it was a sign that, like, Square was getting lazy. Wow. Yeah, that, just that shock silence. You guys fought about different things at your at your high school than I did. <laughs> what did you fight about? If not I, I, RPGs? It certainly wasn't about RPGs. Yeah, I was the. I, mean, I don't want to say I was the only person at my high school that gave a flip about Japanese role playing games, but it was literally like two of us, Aww. and we we couldn't talk about it all the time. Yeah, we certainly weren't arguing about JRPGs. We were arguing about Mortal Kombat. Okay, so we'll we'll keep going through that in a minute. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford, and Chris is at Cobin Heat K O B U N H E A T. Is that correct? That's Chris? it. That's the one. Right on. Yeah. So you can follow us all right there. And also, we have a podcast or podcast this newsletter. Is, I bet you do. Oh. <laughs> We have a newsletter that goes out every Wednesday. Uh, I was in charge of the newsletter this past week, and I chose to write about a Western RPG that 
did actually come out on the Nintendo Switch and maybe is going, flying under the radar a little bit and deserves your attention, and that is a game called Divinity Original Sin 2, which seems to have received a pretty nice little port over. Uh, for my money, it is one of the two or three best RPGs of the generation, as we are kind of seeing right now. And it would be a crime for you to miss it. I'm guessing that a lot of Switch owners maybe didn't catch it when it was on PC or on PlayStation 4 or Xbox One. Well, you're in luck now. It's out. Yeah, I definitely intend to get to that once I, once the review of Crush is over. But God knows when that'll be. Well, I'm playing another RPG right now. An RPG that perhaps I missed that is coming on Nintendo Switch in a few weeks. Dragon Quest? Maybe an RPG that I can't... Yeah, I'm playing Dragon Quest XI S. <laughs> <laughs> well, the suspense killed me there, so... Uh... And it's real good. I'm going to say that much. Uh, I think that the orchestral soundtrack does a hell of a lot for that game. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a lot easier on the ears. So yeah, subscribe to our newsletter, and also follow all of our social media feeds over on the site. Uh, some... A little news that's been happening. Nadia, you've been playing Link's Awakening, and it sounds like it's pretty good, but it has some frame rate issues. Uh, it's actually, it is a, a fantastic port of a fantastic game, but yes, it does have some frame rate issues. Um, I wrote about this on the site if you want to go back and pursue that. Uh, the main problem is the overworld, particularly in towns like, uh, I don't know if it's pronounced Maybe Village or Maybe Village, but uh, there's some slowdown there, whatever you want to call it. There's also some slowdown in Animal Village, which is just adorable beyond words so i barely noticed a slow down there but um the main thing that's good is that the dungeons uh from all the ones that i played so far because i'm not quite finished the game don't seem to have any sort of slowdown it all seems to be pretty consistently uh, 60 frames per second so uh yeah there's just a, a touch of slowdown here and there but it doesn't break the experience at all and frankly like i think i'm having a really good time with it and uh our own Huron is actually playing um, the game for the first time with this with this remake, and he's really enjoying it. Yeah, you would like Kieran, Chris. He's like 20, and he's playing all these games for the very first time. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's experiencing it all uh, through the fresh eyes. So that's <laughs> uh, very exciting. I have a really high opinion of Link's Awakening. I'm kind of I'm disappointed by the frame rate issues, which seem to be having a lot to do with loading in assets and that kind of thing on the overworld mm-hmm. it drops from like 60 fps to 30 fps which is a little bit of a drag i'm curious to see how it ends up being on the that's, uh, Switch that's so unlike nintendo that's so un nintendo like an issue uh for nintendo to have frame rate drops i mean xenoblade chronicles 2 had those problems yeah yeah but that's, that's uh, yeah, yeah, i mean Right, true. It's 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 more unlike EAD. Although I wonder if this is being made by. Is this probably being made by? Um, this is Grezzo, actually. Grezzo? Yeah. yeah, but still, it's just it's odd for a Nintendo first party title to have people complaining about frame rate drops. Like generally, Nintendo will go for um, solid frame rate uh, and and lock it to thirty or something like that, versus let it go to sixty but have but have frame rate inconsistencies. So that's kind of strange, and I wonder if they. I wonder if they looked at both and real and, and just thought, you know what, like 60 FPS, like because this game relies so much on its graphics and the um, the little the sort of little toy box effect that they've got going on. They just they just must have decided that they'll take 60 FPS in most cases and let it drop a little bit. And that's just the better choice. But it's, it's still strange. It's un Nintendo like it is. But uh, Breath of the Wild had its own frame rate issues and they fixed those eventually. So I guess that's their plan. 
I, I have less confidence that Nintendo's going to fix these issues than they did with Breath of the Wild because it feels like more of a one and done than Breath of the Wild, which was heavily supported uh, in the wake of it because that was like a flagship game versus mm-hmm. kind of a, a nice little remake that is, uh, I mean, for being honest, a kind of a second tier holiday c- title. Yeah, but it's still one of the best Zeldas of all time. What's your take on Link's Awakening, Chris? Uh, you know, I actually have not played Link's Awakening since Gasp. literally 1994 in the backseat of my parents' car on a brick <laughs> Game Boy, uh, yes. trying to hold it at the right angle in the sun on a car trip so we could see what was going on. Uh, even th- even so, I loved it then, and I'm really looking forward to digging into this um, to uh, to this remake. I'm not reviewing it for us, so I don't actually have a copy yet, but... Um, I'll I'll suck it up and buy it, I guess. <laughs> like just I like guess. just just like some sort of regular schmo just buying. Yeah, it uh, when you have to like debase yourself like that, but you got to do it once in a while. Well, you want to buy it like some kind of peasant? Jeez. Yeah, it's actually. Um, I it's been a long time, a very long time since I played through um, Link's Awakening. Uh, I I did try it out on the Game Boy Color, like so it hasn't been too too long. But uh, I I am always surprised how just how well constructed those dungeons are I, i'm really having a good time with the game all right and the other thing that happened this week is the sega genesis mini uh sega genesis mini reviews dropped and for us mike williams reviewed it and he gave it a very positive rundown i'm really glad that uh, sega kind of took it internal in-house and and mm-hmm. then also gave it in large part to m2 uh, that was a great decision uh, the library has some omissions but Otherwise, seems relatively strong, um, and they did a really nice job with the interface and everything. Chris, you reviewed it for Kotaku. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, the, uh, yeah, I, I would echo your uh, your compliments there. Certainly, the fact that yes, they they brought it in house and um, they you know it, it, they essentially stopped looking at it as sort of a a source of revenue where they just sort of give somebody the license to do it and then don't really pay very much attention to what it is they're doing, um, but instead bring it in house do it with M2, um, you know, and really try to do something that was comparable to what Nintendo, you know, because Nintendo kind of lit the pathway for them with the NES Classic, and especially, I think, the Super NES Classic, as far as really showing, um, you know, how how good uh, a little mini console really could be in terms of the game selection, you know, going out there, using their leverage to get the absolute best games on the system, really make it a beautiful overview of the best stuff that was out there, um, you know, to do, to make sure the mini console itself was really, really nicely done, uh, the at game stuff, like they, you know, by the time they did the flashback HD in 2017, it was looking better, but it still wasn't, you know, the sort of perfection that you yeah. want. Um, but really it was, yeah, to nail, just just to do everything and, and, and actually approach it as something that you're really really passionate about and wanting everything to be perfect uh and it and it basically is i mean you know there's there's definitely you can you can make a lot of complaints um you know about anything but you can you can you can pick out some areas that they could improve upon um but in general you know it's a it's a far superior product to everything that's come before and it would it, it sits right up there with you know the super nintendo classic as far as like just being put together very well chris you're a well-known genesis hater <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> were you able to swallow your distaste for this console long enough to be able to review it 
you know, what I said in my review was that, I mean, I kind of pointed out that um, if you were a big Genesis fan in America, um, you know, at that time, which we had a Genesis, but we never really had a whole lot of games for it. Um, but if you were a Genesis fan and you had the the popular games on the, the Genesis in America, uh, you're not actually going to find the vast majority of those besides Sonic the Hedgehog, basically, uh, on this machine. Uh, because the Genesis, and this was something that Sega really went after. Um, if you re- actually I think if you read um, uh, Blake Harris's book Console Wars, which is a pretty good um, companion to the book uh, Game Over, which really talks about the Nintendo side of the '90s Console Wars, and Console Wars w- w- was uh, the, the book was about um, the Sega side and what they did to differentiate themselves from Nintendo at that point was that Sega went after hot licenses that were hot in America. Nintendo did it once, well, not once, but like the big one for Nintendo was Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Sega looked at Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, I think, and just like tried to emulate that everywhere between, you know, Joe Montana football and Michael Jackson Moonwalker and then movie licenses in Jurassic Park and NBA, you know, or not NBA Jam, but, you know, um, you know, other, other, well, I mean, NBA Jam was, was probably more popular on the Genesis, right? Mortal Kombat was more popular on the Genesis, but Sega was all about the pro athletes and the big sports franchises and, oh, Disney's Aladdin, you know, that was, that was a Sega published, you know, game, right? So, they, they go after all these big licenses, and it works for them at the time, but what it leaves Sega with today is a library of software that is, by and large, unpublishable. Um, the, to go to try to work out all of those licensing deals. And I think they, I mean, actually, I, I don't know. I mean, they probably could have done it with Aladdin. Like, Disney is actually being pretty good about stuff like that. But maybe, you know, maybe there's something with Genesis Aladdin where there's, you know, the, the code and, the, you know, Shiny Entertainment or Virgin or whatever, you know, maybe maybe they don't own that code anymore and it's not really just a, a matter of just licensing Aladdin back. Either way, the big stuff, and Aladdin was, like, it's it may have been like the third best selling game on the Genesis, you know, and so those games are not here. But what we have um, is a, almost like a Genesis library for people who really liked the Super Nintendo anyway, because it's full of like all the things that didn't sell on the Genesis, but like Japanese role playing games, uh, you know, shmups and fighting games and things like that. It's it's stuff that was really popular in Japan, and so. You know, I'm I'm perfectly happy with the lineup of games. I think that they're great. And, you know, remember, I, I didn't have a Genesis back in the day. I've spent a long time since then, you know, the ensuing uh, 25 years, um, you know, going back and, and experiencing a lot of the games in the Genesis library. So it's great to have, say... And again, so they really, where the Genesis Flashback HD failed is that they had a bunch of Genesis games and a couple of third-party games, but this really goes after, like, the big Capcom games, um, uh, the Konami stuff like Castlevania Bloodlines and Contra Hardcore, um, etc. That All that kind of stuff, and it really is a really nice representation of the, the good stuff on the Genesis. And Virtual Fighter 2. <laughs> <laughs> Addendum. Uh, Chris, we already did the console RPG quest for the Sega Genesis a couple weeks ago, but I'm wondering what your take is on the Sega Genesis's RPG library. It's it's not bad. It's not obviously it's not as strong as the Super Nintendo's, but I mean, you know, I mean it has three Fantasy Star games, none of which I have played a whole lot of, by the way. I recently played through all of Fantasy Star One via the Sega Ages version, and I'm really hoping that I'm hoping they'll do a Sega Ages version of 
you know, quite frankly, any of the Genesis ones. Yeah, because, I totally want to see that. Yeah, I would really love to play one of those um, with the sort of added um, sort of interstitial, intertextual hints and help and menus and things like that, um, that kind of let you go through the game. Yeah, because that's about, like I'm playing, I mean, not to jump ahead a little bit in this conversation, but I'm playing um, Breath of Fire on the Switch. And it's just like every five seconds, I got to go look at a, a, an FAQ because I got to figure out not not to like figure out where to go, but to figure out like, you know, what is this item that I just got that they had to cram it down into four characters? Like, what does this do? What is this? Who is this person? Where that am I going? That's a huge problem with Fantasy Star, even Fantasy Star 4, which I love. It's just like, I don't know what any of these words mean. Yeah, and it's annoying, and then you also end up, you know, kind of wanting to, you know, because then you end up looking at a walkthrough as well, you know, so it's like, I, I, I would love, I would love the Sega Ages version of that, because the Sega Ages version of Fantasy Star 1 took a game that was really just impenetrable, and made it so much easier for me to play and understand and enjoy. Anyway, um, so I started, I did play a lot of RPGs in the Genesis Mini. It would have been cool if they put Crusader of Senti on there, which I actually just replayed recently on the, um, on the Mega SG. Um, uh, but Crusader of Senti is pretty good. Um, I played a bunch of Shining Force 1. I mean, I played a few battles of Shining Force 1, which is a strategy RPG. I'm not, I, I always really think I'm going to be into strategy RPGs, but then each battle takes an hour. And then if you like, if you, if you mess up, like, 59 minutes into an hour long battle you got to do it all over again and like wait for all the turns all over again and i'm like i don't have i don't have time for this um but but it's a cool game like i really like um the design of shining force um and played a little bit of land stalker cool until it like dumps you into some kind of like isometric 3d platforming hell um uh, and then what was the other uh, game on there that I played a bunch of was um, I don't remember another role playing type game. Oh, well. Uh, it, so that's kind of what I put a lot of the, the time into as I was messing with the Genesis mini for sure. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I think that I would get a Genesis mini, but I already have the Gen- Genesis classics collection on my switch and while there are some really neat games on the mini they aren't enough to push me over perhaps sonic 3 would have been enough to push me over yeah but i guess i'd have liked to see that speaking of licensing issues i think the fact i know that, I, I think that's the big one there yeah yeah it's that soundtrack so that's that's a huge bummer and you you really feel the loss of that one but you know the the, the, the mini console that i'm looking forward to the most actually is probably the pc engine mini because it has actually a really robust lineup uh, according to Parrish, who got to play it over at, at TGS, he says that it has probably the best UI of any of the mini consoles. And yeah, no, he was saying it was really good, and the the emulation seems on point. And I'm like, oh man, okay, like if they get this right, that's awesome because these games are way harder to get a hold of than like NES, SNES. Um, even the PlayStation yeah. to some example, Genesis. Yeah, and so. there's and they're just go, there's tons of games on it. There's over fifty games, like well over fifty games. Um, so that's that's nice. 
Um, and it's really, it's bizarre the way they're doing it because they're doing it similar. So the, the well, the, with the Sega Genesis Mini, if you set the console language to Japanese, um, any uh, ROM also changes into Japanese. And so like, uh, and the, the biggest example being Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine reverts yes. back to being Puyo Puyo. Um, but other things like, I mean, the other big example is Contra Hardcore in Japan had a three bar life meter uh, instead of just killing you when you got shot. And like, that was how the game was originally designed and is supposed to be played um and so you can just play that version if you want to but it's other little things like there's a there's a french language version of the game beyond oasis like literally like a cartridge that was just in french that was distributed in in uh in in france i believe and so like that's on there they really went all out to get like every version on there so if you want to play it in french you can just goes to show how badly they screwed up the playstation mini and uh, then the, 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 oh yeah, for sure. Well, the, yeah, I mean, what if the PlayStation Mini had just like, I, I, I don't, I don't know why they picked the PAL games. I think they did it so it would be a worldwide product, essentially. But then they did it the wrong, the, like, why not just put multiple versions? I don't know. It's really, there was, there was definitely not, if the, if the Genesis Mini was made, with the with the passion uh, to do the perfect tiny Genesis, like the PlayStation Classic is like way down the other end of the of the passion scale. You do not feel the the passion for PlayStation. Uh, but yeah, you, about the PC Engine Mini, they have PC Engine games and Turbo Graphics games on there. But it's but it's not like um, it's like some of the games. It's the PC Engine version only. Even like Bonk, like Bonk One is is just the the japanese version of bonk one which of course you know nobody talks in it so you you can play it just fine it's just funny that that's how they did it i have no idea why it's super weird but like everything everything related to the turbo graphics is incredibly weird anyway so why should this be any different so i'm (laughs) I'm looking forward to it as well yeah yeah go listen to our console rpg quest for the pc engine sometime which ended up being a little bit of a two-parter because we thought we forgot one of uh the major games and i still feel bad about that but uh okay before we head on to the snes console quest uh let's talk very quickly about the new final fantasy 7 remake trailer that dropped at tgs um as usual it looks super lit I think that it's funny that we were all kind of wondering if the remake was going to retain the personality of the original Final Fantasy VII, because if anything, it's even zanier. Yeah, it is kind of zany. Uh, first of all, uh, Kohler, uh, important question. Don Corneo, yes. oh, yeah. Mark Hamill or no? <laughs> I have no is, are people saying that? Are people, people saying are totally it's Mark saying Hamill? That. Yes, and I actually reached out to oh, Square Enix, but they won't tell me. And they won't say? They won't say I don't know. They have nothing, we to, have nothing to share. Yeah. Interesting. That's interesting. Because I wonder if they, because sometimes companies, uh, when you, you know, when you ask a question and the answer is no, they just say no. And then when yeah. the answer is yes, they say no comment. So I, I wonder, you know, what that, what that means. But yeah, that's, that's very interesting. That'd be hilarious. That would be fantastic. I would laugh. Apparently he was in Kingdom Hearts, so I guess it's possible. Yeah, no, it looks uh, really good. I I don't know what else there is to say about it. It was fun to see the Turks. Uh, You made a lot of observations, Nadia, in an article over on the site where you were talking about how the the Wu-Tai conflict might be a little more front and center this time around, how the Turks look uh, somewhat more, I want to say, competent. Uh, You were talking about President Shinra and how they've kind of changed him a little bit uh, not the least because he doesn't show up in person like he has a hologram this time around yeah he's got like a fancy drone projected hologram this time around 
the Turks are interesting because they look all, I said it, they look almost competent this time, but then Rude picks up Cloud and spins him into Eris, which <laughs> is just the funniest visual ever because <laughs> Cloud's just sitting there with his arms out like some like demented child. It's just fantastic. And just throws him right into Eris. Aerith, sorry. And there's a new character, seemingly, that's uh, chasing after the the group, and they look like a soldier. So I'm I'm curious to see how these new characters are kind of received by the fans. I called him a soldier mullet class, because uh, (laughs) Cloud does identify him as a soldier. He just says a soldier. So whereas in the previous game, like... uh, there, you know, Cloud talks about Soldier all the time, but you don't really see them except in random encounters. Uh, and I guess this time they're like, hey, Soldier's a thing, and uh, they can totally kick your ass. Maybe. Chris, uh, what's your take on Final Fantasy VII Remake? I'm gonna play it. Um, I, oh, I, you don't have the hype <laughs> you know, it's for exciting. it. exciting. Yeah, right? No, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not like as, yeah, totally, totally pumped. Oh my God, I can't believe this is actually happening as a lot of people because, you know, I like Final Fantasy VII, but I mean, look, if it was the Final Fantasy V remake, obviously I'd be a lot more excited. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's it's fair. not, it's, it's not my favorite Final Fantasy. And I think it's a, you know, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a great game. I loved playing it at the time. I played, because we did a Retronauts on the the Midgar section of Final Fantasy VII. So I'm actually, it's very fresh in my mind, that particular section of the game. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with it, for sure. Um, really interested to see uh, just what the plan is to cover the whole game, which I, mm-hmm. you know, they, that is probably what they're gonna do right they want to do the the whole entire final fantasy 7 in a series of remakes so we're gonna see how long it's gonna take him to do that yeah you should go check out that final fantasy 7 uh retronauts since i was on it too that's right yes what were I we gonna say like Nadia? i was on it was i on it no okay. you were not <laughs> okay. no sorry thank you i've been on so many retronauts that haven't gone up so i, I don't know what's what yeah. anymore <laughs> yeah sorry to let you down oh that's okay but you I'm weren't sure on it fun all right, Final Fantasy VII Remake coming out in March. I, I, unlike Chris, I am actually extremely pumped for it. Um, I am feeling the hype deep in my soul. Not the least because I've been replaying the original FF7, which, I mean, I had to put it aside for uh, DQ11S, but I was really enjoying what I was playing of it. I was actually kind of surprised at how well it held up in a lot of respects. So I look forward to seeing all the controversy and the uh, absolute fanboy shitstorm that's going to start once ff7 remake come out i'm just going to have my popcorn out it's gonna be great it's gonna be great it's gonna be gr- it's gonna be a, a really fun time i would like it if you could go back to seven sometime because like, i liked our report that was that was a fun time all right let's continue on to the super nintendo console quest All right, it's time for the Super Nintendo Console RPG Quest, part of our ongoing series in which we take a look at the RPG legacy of every major console to come out. And, I mean, this is the big one, everybody. As we were already kind of alluding to, the Super Nintendo might have a strong claim to being the best and most significant RPG console of all time. Uh, The number one game on our Top 25 RPG Countdown was a super nintendo game that was chrono trigger Uh, final fantasy 6 was up there as well final fantasy 5 was on that list there are a lot of games uh dq5 was on that list i mean it's hard to overstate the impact 
of the Super Nintendo on RPG history. So, I, I mean, I feel like we've kind of covered this territory in the past, but Nadia, what's your personal history with the Super Nintendo? My personal history with the Super Nintendo is uh, I got one a little bit late, um, as I got my Nintendo quite late as well. Uh, I want to say I got my Super Nintendo in 93, and I kind of hit the ground running because I remember uh, I rented that year. I rented Secret of Mana, uh, which, of course, I just like fell in love with. Then I was like, wow, this square, these square chaps seem okay with me, and I rented Final Fantasy VI when it came out later that year, and I was like, okay, I got to have this game. And it was just... From then on, it just kind of ballooned. And of course, even before I was playing the RPGs of the SNES, I was playing, you know, Star Fox and, and Mega Man X and Super Mario World and just one great game after another. And I know that, like, of course, you had your, like, Genesis kids in the schoolyard, but I was just like, no, it's so much better on the Super Nintendo. It's like I told you before, Kat. They'd be like, oh, Sonic is so fast and so cool, and Mario is so slow. It's like, but Mario's about exploration, and it totally is. You know, I was right, and I'm still right. <laughs> so, yeah, SNES is definitely um, probably my favorite system overall, maybe just slightly behind the PlayStation, but I do have a very deep history with it. It's one of those systems, you will have that system that was with us during our, our formative years of youth, and that was probably my system. Yeah, I think we got three Super Nintendo homers in here because, I mean, from the moment that it came out, I was all in on the Super Nintendo. I had to have one. I was constantly annoying my friends by evangelizing for the damn thing. I had no time for the Sega Genesis whatsoever, (laughs) even though I really wanted Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh my god, I loved that game so much. But I did not get a Super Nintendo because my parents were mean and would not get me one for Christmas because they properly understood that if I got a Super Nintendo, they would never see me again. Uh, Yeah, that happened a lot in my family. Like, I tended to go whole hog when it came to the video games. So my uh, video gaming in the 90s tended to be a lot more PC-oriented, weirdly enough. But I did get a Super Nintendo eventually in 1999, and as I have related on this show before, that is when I really started to get properly into RPGs as a genre, and not just some other video game that I was playing. Chris, what's your history with the Super Nintendo? Yeah, the Super Nintendo was the first console that I ever, like, you know, had that pre-release hype for, because we had, an, you know, by that point... Um, we had an NES, which we did not get until a few years into. We got an 88, right? And so I had, you know, and then it kind of grew from there. It's like we got the NES. I got a subscription to Nintendo Power. Nintendo Power starts telling me about the Super Nintendo. And so I start getting, you know, that sort of pre-release. I got to get this new game system hype. Wow, oh, this is going to be so much better than our original Nintendo. Now, fortunately, I had the kind of parents who, I mean, my dad was an old school, like, computer nerd. So, I mean, he, they understood the value of upgrading your computational hardware like they did not have to be sold because a lot of parents i mean my you know my best friend at the time he had an nes and his mom was like no you you have she said you have too much invested into the nintendo you have all those nintendo games they're not going to work on the new system you can't get the new system but my parents they understood like you have to upgrade the technology. That's that's what you got to do. So, you know, they had no issue with it. It was just a matter of, you know, I don't have $200. I think we ended up, like, 
you know, I got $50, my brother got $50, my parents put in $100, and, you know, we, we bought the Super Nintendo pretty close to launch. We got it pretty close to when it came out. Um, just, you know, went crazy playing Super Mario Brothers. Uh, I really wanted... Um, uh, Final Fight was the second game that I really wanted because I loved playing Final Fight on the arcade. Super Nintendo had a version. I knew it was one player, did not really care. It was fine with me. Um, and then I think it was in that year that um, uh, I think a friend had gotten Final Fantasy 2. No, maybe it was a little bit later. It was probably a little more like, I, I don't know. I really don't know the year, but it's like a friend got Final Fantasy 2. Um, I... I played it and kind of bounced off of it. Uh, then we got Secret of Mana, you know, and then it was basically during that Super Nintendo uh, thing that my love for role-playing games kind of took hold because we had Final Fantasy on the NES, but I was just like, it, you know, Final Fantasy 1 on the NES, it's pretty, it's, it, if you're an impatient um 11 year old, um, you don't, you don't understand the value of, uh, grinding up to level three as the first thing you do in the game before you go, you know, cause the, the strategy guide is telling you, okay, go fight Garland, you know, and then it's like, okay, I'll go fight Garland and kicks your ass. And, you know, you don't understand like grinding and patience and all that kind of stuff. So I bounced super hard off of that. Actually, really, I got to the marsh cave, you know, everybody gets to the marsh cave and then it's just like, then that just beats your ass, you know? And so I, th I thought that Final Fantasy 2, Final Fantasy 4, was going to do the same thing. And as it turns out, it absolutely does not because they had had a bunch of iteration there and it was actually, you know, quite a lot easier to, to play it. Uh, I just didn't realize that. So, yeah, it was basically sort of during the Super Nintendo uh, uh, life cycle that I became, you know, I, I, I entered it not liking role-playing games. I exited being a huge RPG nut. What's funny is what's funny is that my my parent my dad was also a big PC person was in IT in the 80s which is why we had a lot of PCs in the house and uh, consoles and such but he would not buy me a Super Nintendo. He was not going to do that thing for me. So So uh, did he did you get away with like playing PC games because you're like it's educational? Oh, my parents knew that the PC games I was playing were not educational cuz I was playing Doom and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally educational. It's all about religion. My parents would buy me PC. My parents would buy me edutainment type games, and I just wouldn't play them because I was like, this, <laughs> this, this not even Oregon Trail. This stuff is boring. No, it wasn't Oregon Trail. It was like learning games. Uh, like these games you. are here to teach you things. You are doing lessons, and I'm like, this, come on. So gross. But back to the Super Nintendo, um, you mentioned, Chris, that you were getting pushback because there wasn't any backward compatibility with the NES, and that was a, a huge thing at the time. Uh, you mentioned Game Over uh, a little earlier, which was a contemporary account of the rise of the, Super, of the Nintendo, and it touches a bit on the Super Nintendo and everything, and what a big deal it was when it launched over in Japan. And there was a, a lot of pushback in North America mm -hmm. from parents who are like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want me to not only get a whole new console, but none of the old games work on there? What a freaking boondoggle, <laughs> right? So it was, uh, it was a relatively controversial thing at the time. It was, but in my household, it was just like, okay, we'll have the SNES in the living room and hook up the NES to another TV. I mean, your parents were good parents. <laughs> <laughs> My parents, I guess, knew what the state of the world was. Like, 
And it didn't help that uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi's bare-knuckle competitive tactics were starting to wear thin with publishers and retailers alike, mm-hmm. which uh, when the first instance that they had, they were able to s- sense weakness in Nintendo, especially in North America, and were able to start going over to the Genesis, they took it because... I mean, people were a little, got a little sick of Nintendo stepping on their throat uh, through the late 80s and into the early 90s. Uh, Chris, you were mentioning earlier how sports games were able to really get a foothold on the Genesis versus the Super Nintendo. And one of the problems was uh, the processor and the dang thing was uh, made it so that games like NHL, just and on the at the early going at least, just didn't run as well on the Sega Genesis. So we tend to think of the Super Nintendo as maybe the more powerful console, but is it kind of fair to say that the Genesis was maybe a little easier to program for? Um, I think, well, the Genesis, I think, was more familiar to the programmers that were working, um, you know, especially in the U.S. and even Japan at, at that point. Like the 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 processor, I don't want to, I don't want to, take a, a guess at what the exact name of it is because it's the it's the motorola z something that i'm gonna ruin mm-hmm. um and uh but i think that that processor had been used so much that people were a lot more familiar with how to um squeeze that performance out of it because the super nintendo was by far in in basically always more popular i think it was just more complex to to work with and I, 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 you know, if I had to guess, I would bet that, you know, the Super Nintendo was, the Super Nintendo was designed to do the things that the Super Nintendo could do, which is what you see Nintendo doing Super Mario World and F-Zero and Pilot Wings and stuff like that. And the, you don't really see Nintendo in Japan uh, as, you know, being too, too focused on um, getting American sports games uh, to be easily programmed. But basically, I think a lot of that kind of happened in the early days where the Genesis was much more of a known quantity um, and the Super Nintendo, you know, people were maybe struggling with it some more. Towards the end, I believe, you know, you, you kind of reached more in terms of parity with the uh, with the Super NES and Genesis uh, sports games. As far that's that's kind of what I remember is that as we kind of reached the end of the generation, it. I think the Super Nintendo had an obvious advantage in the RPG space from the very beginning over the Genesis because it had Square on its side and mm-hmm. Square and, and Enix actually. And both were kind of like at their absolute height, I want to say. Their, the creative height. They were putting out incredible games. Going in, they had every third-party publisher mm-hmm. because, you know, all the third-party publishers, pretty much they made Famicom games. And they, if you look at like the Sega Master System, the third parties generally did not produce games for the Sega SG-1000 and the the Sega Master System. In general, it was, if, if you saw a third-party game appear, and a lot of times it was Sega going out and licensing the third-party game and making its own version in-house. Um, like, you know, Ghouls and Ghosts was on the Master System, but Capcom did not make that. That was Sega licensing it and making their own version. Strider on the Genesis was not made by Capcom. It was Sega licensed it and made it. Um, and so Sega... And, and of course, this is this is very similar to the PC Engine for a long time. You know, also, it's like a lot of those third-party games were NEC going out, getting the rights. Fighting Street, Street Fighter, like that was NEC doing its own version. And so, in general, the third parties were making Famicom games. They were making Super Famicom games. But it was really the Genesis 
you know, shaking up the dominance of the Super Nintendo in the marketplace that caused, you know, the publishers to say, well, you know, I think we'd like to actually make and publish our own games on uh, this this platform. Diversify the business a little bit. Yeah, it was, I think, in Christmas 92 that Genesis actually kind of cleaned the Super Nintendo's clock, if I recall correctly. Yeah, they were doing doing real good there for a second, yeah. For a second, yeah. In, in America. <laughs> they were doing really well, and not in America, in the West, basically. Like, they were yeah. doing very well in the West. They they were getting their clock cleaned in Japan um, all the time uh, by, by, the, right. the, by the Super Famicom and the PC Engine. I mean, they were, like, third place, but... It, but it had its it had its niche for sure. But then, really, it was because Sega of America had uh, such a free hand to do whatever it wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, imagine if Nintendo of America had something similar, you know. But but Sega, you know, Sega of America was able to basically do what it wanted to do, and it was able to, as I was kind of saying earlier, you know, lock down those really hot licenses. Uh, really, was able to move very quickly as far as like, okay. We think this kind of a game is going to be successful. They don't have to go back to Japan and say, because that was what Nintendo of America had to do. If they wanted Mm -hmm. a certain game, they'd go back to Japan and be like, okay, all right, this is the kind of game. Can you please make us this game? This is what we need. Um, And then you've got the back and forth with the, you know, cultural differences and everything like that. Sega of America really was able to just be like, okay, you, this, this, this company in California, make us this exact game. This is what it's going to sell. Yeah, it's astounding. There was something on the order of 700 SNES games uh, in North America and 1,400 in Japan. And, like, literally double the yeah. number of SNES games. It's actually remarkable. Particularly RPGs, as we'll see. A, a lot of those, you know, not all of them, obviously, but, you know, a lot of those were RPGs that did not get translated over here mm-hmm. because it was a hugely popular genre in um, Japan. Uh, and the Super Nintendo was when, that was essentially around that time when Japanese publishers and even and Nintendo, too, they, everybody was like, I mean, again, like, when I say RPGs were popular in Japan, I mean, like, they were, like, the most popular genre of game. Like, when, when people go to Japan for the first time and they go to like Akihabara and they want to buy a copy of Final Fantasy VI and they're like, oh my God, they're everywhere and they cost a dollar. It's like, yeah, because Final Fantasy VI was like the John Madden football of Japan. Like they they produced like three whatever million copies of it and they're everywhere. Um, and so that's, you know, that that is how big it was. So that's why Nintendo and the other publishers in America were like, man, if we can get RPGs to have the same level of success like proportionally amongst our player base um, as they do in Japan, we could be selling five, 10 million units of these games in the U S and Europe. So we just, we got to get it going now. Obviously we know hard and well, it happened. It happened. It happened with final fantasy seven, but it was ironically the PlayStation. It it was, it was, but all (laughs) the groundwork, you know, they did, uh, you know, again, like, Everything for uh, you know the the success of Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation. There were so many things, but that that building that groundwork and doing that work and taking the losses, you know, with getting the Final Fantasy series established in the U.S., which again, Final Fantasy One was published by Nintendo in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that that all that groundwork kind of led to that to it being able to become the quote unquote overnight success that it did because it wasn't an overnight success. You know what I mean? It was a it was a decade long. Um, process. Well, I mean, the, so I, I guess we might as well talk about uh, Square and Enix at that time. I mean, 
Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, I mean, we've talked about this more than once on this podcast, uh, but, I mean, absolute height on the Super Nintendo, like, it doesn't come close, right? I mean, Final Fantasy 4, 5, and 6 were the peak of the series, Dragon Quest 4, 5, and 6, peak of the series, There's no no argument on that front, I, I don't think. You're, I mean, you're not going to get one from me. Certainly, there might be people out there, probably are people out there who would argue it, but it's but <laughs> not, well, not I can myself. argue the Dragon Quest part, but yes, uh, for Final Fantasy, absolutely. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how RPGs really evolved from that time because on the NES, of course, they still had a little bit of that PC kind of thing going on where they were very crunchy in many respects and were much more focused on the actual dungeon crawling and and grinding and and whatnot. And it it was on the Super Nintendo, especially starting with Final Fantasy IV, where Mm -hmm. you started to see a much, much bigger focus on storytelling and that is and suddenly developers were like oh we got this 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 wonderful graphics that these this lavish kind of painterly look that we can give them with the super nintendo's colors we can do so much more with the actual sound chip and everything uh which (laughs) the super nintendo has one of the most interesting sound chips around we have so much more memory i believe the largest super nintendo game is something on the order of 48 megs versus like how many like it, it never even broke into meg ter- territory on the uh, on the original nes right it was only like a couple of megs for a cartridge so just the the sheer memory expansion opened up so many possibilities for a console like the super nintendo and then at the time that development costs weren't nearly as high so Mm -hmm. uh places like square were kind of allowed to let their imaginations run wild and they could and and they could still produce these games in just like less than a year it's actually really remarkable to to think that like final fantasy 6 which is so which just made so expediently yeah final well final fantasy 6 was the one where uh, again, every other Final Fantasy game to that point had been made in one year, like including Final Fantasy V, which was a huge, you know, mountain to climb. Final Fantasy VI, I believe, was the first time where they like it got delayed like like four months, <laughs> and uh, and it was a big deal. Like people people were removed from the Chrono Trigger project to do because they were doing Chrono Trigger and FF6 simultaneously, and they like they were like, no, hold on, Chrono Trigger is on hold because we need all hands on deck to finish Final Fantasy VI. It was the first time they'd ever like not done one in a year. Uh, but it's 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 staggering to think about it. And this is why I always say like you cannot you can't make another Final Fantasy VI because you cannot take um, a group of the best game designers in the world and have them kill themselves, you know, for a year to create a pixel art role-playing game anymore. Like, it's not possible to to recreate it. Um, it was just, it's such a product of its time. But yeah, they made those things. It's, it's, it's crazy to think, like, the the small team cranking that thing out in, in such record time. And, I mean, a lot of it is they they just slept under their desks. Yeah, that's not exactly a heroic tale, unfortunately. It wasn't healthy. It wasn't healthy. But, you know, to be fair, I mean, to be fair, you know, yes, they were not getting any sleep and not going home and, you know, but they were also drinking and smoking really heavily, too. (laughs) That probably helped. (laughs) That made it so much better. That made it so... Yeah. (laughs) That replaced exercise. You know, enough enough nicotine, you don't really need food. (laughs) That's true, actually. (laughs) It does suppress your hunger. (laughs) It does. Amazing. Uh, 
Chris, you're you're an RPG fan pretty much from the start on the Super Nintendo, which made you kind of a, I would say, put you in a, the minority at the time. I, I certainly didn't care about RPGs in the early 90s. I was only thinking about Street Fighter and, and Super Mario World and the various platformers and all of that. What was it like to be in this kind of a, I mean, at the one hand, it's a golden age. It's an amazing time. You're occasionally getting these incredible RPGs. But at the same time, a bit of a dark time for American RPG mm-hmm. fans. I, you know, I didn't really perceive it as being a dark time because, you know, the, I, well, first of all, games were so expensive and I was a teenager that I really couldn't buy that many games anyway. Um, the only, I mean, certainly uh, I wanted because I had, you know, once once I had played Final Fantasy three, Final Fantasy six on the Super Nintendo and realized like, oh my God, like. I love Final Fantasy 4. I love Final Fantasy 6. What do you mean they're not translating Final Fantasy 5? You know, that's kind of when I really felt like, oh man, I wish I could have this game. And then you would occasionally see screenshots of, I mean, you know, more fool me, I'd see a screenshot of Romancing Saga 3 and think, oh, that's a game I'd really want to play. Come to find out that I'd really rather not. Um, But you see the graphics and it's like, oh, it looks just like Final Fantasy VI. It's like it is, except for, you know, you have no idea what we're going to do. And so uh, it didn't really feel like a dark time. Like it actually felt very exciting because there were a lot of RPGs coming out. Like, remember, a lot of these companies were attempting. It was really more about... um, you know, yeah, it was kind of disappointing. There was stuff that I wasn't playing, but there was so much stuff comparatively to play that was so good. So, I mean, I was building up this collection of games that included, um, you know, not just Final Fantasies, but Secret of Mana, uh, Chrono Trigger, obviously, uh, Breath of Fire, you know, um, Act Razor, which I absolutely, I, I got that for like 20 bucks, I think, uh, used. And it was, it, oh man, I just loved it so much. Um, and uh, Robo Trek. Uh, and uh, probably some other NX, you know, role-playing games that I was that I was playing at the time, and, and then of course Nintendo with Super Mario RPG and Earthbound. Um, you know, Nintendo was doing role-playing games as well, and so there was, uh, yeah, there was plenty. There was plenty to uh, to play for sure. And then I accidentally played Draken too for a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> that was like one of the first, if not the first, RPG to come out for the Super Nintendo, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was really early. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Like ninety. 91. Tell us a little more about Draken for those in the audience who are not familiar with it. I, I played it for about five minutes in 1993 <laughs> and bounced pretty hard off of it. It wasn't, yeah, it was pretty, um, it was not user-friendly, to say the least. It yeah, was not user-friendly. I think it was an Amiga game that was ported to the SNES, so that that went about the way you could expect. Yep. Oh, and of course, Illusion of Gaia, um, yes. you know, another one that Nintendo kind of decided, oh, we'll bring this one over. Um, and uh, gee, I mean, there were so many more that I at least played, you know, some of back in the day for sure. Um, and I only only recently, by the way, that I played through all of uh, Illusion of Gaia's sequel, Terra Enigma. Um, and uh, that was that was one of the weird ones where uh, we didn't get it, but Europe got it. But it was translated by Nintendo of America. So, I mean, there clearly was you know there i think they were thinking of bringing it over here but it was just it was too late in the super nintendo's life cycle i think to to do it but for some reason europe wanted to do it so they did it and that that game is great you got to play if you like illusion of gaia or uh you know really secret of mana or action role-playing games in general you've got to play terra enigma yeah as people on this show know i am the biggest quintet uh stand there is like i i just adore their games and i adore their themes and how like they were one of the first game companies to actually get serious about storytelling i love them 
Yeah, a lot of RPGs really came into full bloom on the Super Nintendo. I mean, games like Shin Megami Tensei got their start on the Famicom, but when the Super Nintendo came out, uh, they kind of exploded in popularity. I think a good case in point is Fire Emblem, which, yeah, it started on the Famicom, but then on the Super Famicom, you have one of the probably the most popular entry in the series, at least over in Japan, which was Genealogy of the Holy War. And then you had Thrasia 776, which was uh, very popular with the, the hardcore set. Uh, they remade one of them. I think they remade Mystery of the Emblem. And that when we think of the Fire Emblems that came out here, uh, came out in Japan before they came out here, we often go back to that time and in many respects, I would say that maybe Fire Emblem was kind of at its best when it was in that 2D look for a, in a lot of respects because it had really nice sprite work and the tactics RPG aspect of it worked really well. And um, the Super Nintendo, I mean, God, it was such a, a leap over the, the Famicom uh, mm-hmm. from a graphics and a, stamp, and a music standpoint. Like the second that I saw Super Nintendo, like the, the Nintendo just seemed like trash to me. Like I didn't, I didn't want anything <laughs> did, to do it? with it anymore. It was horrifically outdated. The colors were flat. Uh, there were like no moving backgrounds. The music was terrible. And I thought, well, what a piece of junk. That's why. That's part of the reason I got rid of it. You know, when I sold my my Nintendo at a garage sale in like 1994, I, which I regret forever. Oh, which yeah. I was like, well, Nintendo, it's so outdated now. <laughs> oh my god, I, I can't stand this thing. That's so funny because, like, since I got the NES so late, I kind of had to really get into those late NES games, like, that were really good, like, you know, the, the later Mega Man games and, and all of that. I don't feel like I really turned uh, back to the Nintendo and really came to appreciate its distinct style until Mega Man 9 came out in 2008. That's funny, yeah, but that would make sense. Yeah, because by that time it was classic, right? It was, rather it was very, than just, very classic. Rather than just outdated. Just old. <laughs> <laughs> just old and busted. Uh, another game I think really that really benefited from the Super Nintendo's graphics output was Super Robot Wars, which it got its start on the original Game Boy, it got remade on the NES, but it was on the Super Nintendo that they started having moving backgrounds, they started adding tons more characters, uh, they were able to really improve the music. One of the original original generation games came out on the Super Nintendo, and they were so hard. <laughs> they were really, <laughs> really, really hard. But if you look at the difference between the Game Boy which version, which is quite simple, and the Super Nintendo version, which started uh, integrating like little animated cut-ins and everything, lots of different cutscenes, um, the the difference is stark and apparent. And in mm-hmm. fact, the Super Nintendo was great for licensed games because I feel like that was the first time that you could really recognize the thing that you really liked yeah. uh, in the <laughs> graphics form because they could like reproduce it with uh, yeah, the sixteen bit pixels like instead of just like a a blob of like blue. Yeah, oh, definitely great for anime uh, licensed games for sure, right? Oh, absolutely. Because you're right, all the characters actually looked like themselves. Like they were, they had the accurate colors, usually the accurate animations. Yeah, that was the that was the height of sprite work. Oh yeah, uh, and I think one of the reasons RPGs stood out to me was when I looked at uh, I looked at screenshots of them um, 
in gay magazines, I thought they were these lovely portraits, right? Mm-hmm. Where I was like, oh, wow, like, it, graphics don't get any better than this. <laughs> you know, it's literally <laughs> way, impossible right. for graphics to improve. <laughs> yeah, and people have done some nice things, you know, on the NES since then. And, uh, of course, if people had, you know, stuck with the Famicom and, I mean, especially because, you know, especially because you can add chips to the board of yes. cartridge games. Uh, you know, you see a lot of, of, of NES and later day Famicom games that have, you know, excellent um, portraits and graphics and things like that, or like, you know, something like Metal Slater Glory on the Famicom, which looks incredible uh, because they can just keep loading it up with, I mean, you know, they could have loaded it up with more coprocessors and things like that, you know, creating a Super FX chip type situation. If they were... If they wanted to do that, but ultimately, you know, they they moved on to another system and everybody stopped making games for 8-bit. And, and that that kind of began, people realized, the console cycle. The thing is, when the, when the Super Nintendo came out, um, you know, nobody was really sure what would happen to the 8-bit market. People thought the 8-bit market was going to kind of keep going in tandem with the 16-bit market. Um, and then what ended up happening was that it dropped like a rock. Um, and people were like, oh, crap, it dropped really fast. And that's what happens in a console cycle now. But this was the first time that this was actually even happening. And so all the things we take for granted with a console cycle now, um, they didn't realize that that was actually going to occur at that point. Some uh, some more games that never, extremely important RPGs that ultimately never made it over to the Super Nintendo because, well, you know, <laughs> RPGs weren't much of a thing here and it was they took a long time to localize and you had to really make a push uh, to do it. Final Fantasy V, which was going to be Final Fantasy Extreme. Um, and Chris, we've talked about this on the show before, but you were one of the first people to localize it. Was it was going to be Extreme? Were yeah. they seriously going to do that? Yeah. They were going to call it Final Fantasy Extreme. That was the that was the idea. I mean, they Extreme. realized it was a great game, uh, but they just had to call it something else because they'd already... They'd already it was going to be... Well, I mean, originally, I think I believe that they took it to... Um, CES uh-huh. when it was still in Japanese and they showed it there as Final Fantasy 3 and they were like oh yeah this is going to be called Final Fantasy 3 when it comes to the US because if it was a Final Fantasy game they were like yeah of course we're going to localize it but then you know stuff happened um, and then you know Final Fantasy you know because again they were making these games at the rate of one per year you know Final yeah. Fantasy 6 got done they looked at 6 they were like oh this game is this game is really going to be something special. So they just, so they skipped over to it, but they're like, well, we still could bring this game out. We could call it final fantasy extreme because of the, um, the sort of very deep character creation mechanics. Um, and that didn't happen. Uh, but yes, I was, I, so I, I got a copy of final fantasy five, uh, when there were no super Nintendo emulators, that was not something that existed. Um, I had to just buy an imported cartridge. Um, did not know Japanese, uh, started, you have my, literally my, my katakana guide from this is, I swear this is true. Uh, the instruction book, uh, for, uh, Mario paint on the super Nintendo, (laughs) which had a listing of, you know, katakana symbols that were in the game because they just left them all in the U S version. So that was my Japanese translation guide. Um, I was able to figure out that the, the, the word potion was actually able to read the word potion, despite not knowing any Japanese by, by kind of going bit by bit. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, oh, no, actually, sorry, I didn't even, I I didn't even um, uh, translate the word potion. I saved my game, used the item, 
verified its effects and was like, oh, that's a potion. <laughs> like that's a, that's a cure. That's a cure item, basically. Right. And so I wrote down the katakana, copying it, you know, out of out of the game as if I was copying something off the Rosetta Stone, you know, and uh, wrote and wrote down next to it like, okay, potion or possibly like cure or heal or something like that. Um and uh, so that was so that was how I started playing Final Fantasy V. And thank God I found friends on the internet uh, that could help me out. Uh, and so that that began the process of building what would become the first ever Final Fantasy V FAQ that was in English, and you know, on on and on from there. Mm-hmm. Also, Tales of Fantasia, which kind of gave us oh yeah yeah kind of gave us the. On the one hand, you're going into a different battle screen, but at the same time, it's real time, so it's a little bit of an action RPG. And, mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, Tales of Fantasia was really good. <laughs> and second of all, it uh, was the launching point for one of the most popular B-tier RPGs around. Yeah, and it was also like... Like Tales of Fantasia on the Super Famicom was almost like an early PlayStation One game. Like they, it was, they, yeah. they, the cartridge was so huge. The graphics, you know, this there was a there was a vocal theme song. There was there right? was a vocal theme song, a vocal J-pop yeah. Song. So like they just they just like went all out with that game. Um, and Star Ocean uh, as, as as well was that very very late um famic or super famicom role-playing game getting towards the end of it where they were really like they you could see developers being really ready to move on to cd and start embracing cd because they were already thinking about these very expansive yeah kind of things yeah this is costing us a ton of money please transition to cds now <laughs> yeah right uh romancing saga yeah yeah sure <laughs> no sure thoughts on that one <laughs> Yeah, not yeah, not my favorite series, but you know, obviously, a- again, something that really came into its own on the Super Famicom. There were fully there were three games in that series on the Super Famicom. They are gorgeous. I listen to the soundtracks uh, all the time to this day uh, of the Romancing Saga games because they are marvelous. Um, you know, beautiful, beautiful games um, that are not my cup of tea gameplay wise it's having a little bit of a renaissance i want to say because romancing saga 3 was finally just confirmed to be coming out in north america for the first time yeah which is awesome which is awesome and uh i i love that you know a and it's not quite it's it's not uh, well actually i mean you know i'm sure you've, you've talked about this in a previous episode but i mean the thing that really excites me is the fact that uh seiken densetsu 3 which now i think we all have to call trials of mana um yes. that the actual super nintendo version of that not a remake not a remaster you know the real thing they went back and they translated that rom and they released it as part of the collection of mana and that is super exciting because nobody ever translates you know officially translates mm-hmm. old roms and puts them out i mean it's almost like you can count it on one hand the ones that actually happen monster world uh, monster world 4 on the genesis mini being by the way one of those um that was translated for the for the wii virtual console that version is now in english um Kid, they translated Kid Dracula for the Famicom right, in that Konami did. collection, and now they translated Seiken Densetsu 3 as Trials of Mana. It's super exciting. The Romancing Saga 2 and 3 remakes are, they look they look good, like they use the original pixel art, like they are enhanced, you know, they're not the original Super Nintendo ROMs, but it's, it's wonderful that they're going back to that catalog, you know, finding stuff like this that people can play and enjoy, um, and, and getting it re-released again, for sure. 
Yeah, I think the Super Nintendo had the highest number of quote-unquote holy grails per capita in terms of Mm -hmm. import games out of maybe any console. I mean, think about the sheer number of them from Dragon Quest V for a long time, uh, Final Fantasy V, Terra Enigma, I mean, Trials of Mana, obviously. Just go down on, on down the list. I mean... That's what kept the Super Nintendo front and center in the minds of so many different people because they were desperate to play these games. And the Super Nintendo held up so much better than the 8-bit consoles in many respects because the, the graphics were maybe a lot more accessible. Game design had really started to evolve quite a bit by the Super Nintendo era. So modern they, they weren't as jarring for modern players to play. And even today... A game like Star Ocean, for example, which was yet another RPG that got a series that got its start on the Super Nintendo, really stands out like in this day and mm-hmm. age. And you look at those screenshots and you think to yourself, dang, you don't think, wow, well, it's certainly an artifact of its time. You think, well, it's quite lovely, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, what, that's the case with, with a lot of SNES RPGs, I find. It's like uh, uh, the later ones in particular. I still look at Chrono Trigger and I'm still blown away by parts of it yeah i mean that's i wrote a review of chrono trigger for kotaku for no reason other than i had just i had decided i had to replay chrono trigger and i replayed it on the ds um which is which is by the way the you know definitive best version of chrono trigger Agreed. um and um and and wrote that review like this this holds up like i don't care like i i feel like i hope that i don't have you know these sort of rose colored glasses where i look back at stuff that i've played i feel like i i have something of an ability to say this holds up this doesn't hold up this aged well this doesn't aged well and or hasn't aged well i think that chrono trigger absolutely has aged well because it is just this perfect you know version of um the the 16 bit role playing game that it was just the end of an evolutionary line because everything went 3D after that, and it's just beautiful. It's you know the the gameplay is is can totally be enjoyed by people today who like role playing games. It's so very good in a way that you know a lot of role playing games, even on the Super Nintendo, are not like you know. Again, I'm playing Breath of Fire right now. That that I feel like more like you have to. Um, you have to have played it at the time or sort of yeah. be a big 16-bit role-playing game nerd to get over the the unpolished nature of it. Yeah, Kat actually played Chrono Trigger for the first time, like, very recently, and she was blown away by it. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was stunned by how complex the storytelling was, uh, how open-ended the design was. I thought the battle system was outstanding. I mean, the graphics are second to none. The... The soundtrack is phenomenal. I mean, it's pretty much the perfect game. And <laughs> you're like praising it. And I was just like, well, you don't have to tell us twice. We named it the best RPG ever made. And I totally stand by that assessment. So, <laughs> I mean. I also named it the best RPG soundtrack. I mean, yeah, you think about at that time how monumental it must have been in Japan to have the creators of Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy joining forces to create the the ultimate RPG, you know? That's, it's and hard Akira to Toriyama put that into context, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Akira well, Toriyama, yeah. 
<laughs> a lot of us didn't really realize at the time, and this was kind of a it was a it was the NX's business model was that NX never had in-house development, um, and so uh, that everything was you know it's like um, a Dragon Quest game. You know the character designs were done by Toriyama, who was a freelancer. Uh-huh. Um, the game design was done by or the scenario was done by Yuji Hori, who had his own company, Armor Project. He had never he never worked for NX, and then the game itself was made by Chunsoft, you know, which was. Um, um, uh, oh, geez. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the poor guy's name. Uh, Nakamura, his company. Um, and then, of course, Koichi Sugiyama was freelance, whereas Square, everything was done in-house. With NX, everything was done by freelancers. They did not have in-house development. Um, and so what that meant was that all these people were completely free to work <laughs> with Square um, on, you know, whatever projects they felt like. And even it's like Koichi Sugiyama had done uh, music for uh, half, half or hard boiled, half boiled hero, um, you know. And, and so, I mean, they it's it wasn't it, it's like they could just work with them if they felt like it. And they did uh, circling back very quickly to uh, lesser known RPGs that nevertheless had a fan base uh Chris, do you have any particular opinions on Lufia? Um, yeah, well, I played them both. I mean, because again, beggars, you know, cannot be choosers. And uh, so there were not, there were a lot of role playing. It's, it's funny because, like, there were, like, there were actually quite a few role playing games and a lot of that I didn't experience. But, you know, um, for the big ones, I think I rented the Lufia games back in the day and just sort of jammed through them as fast as I could and, you know, got the rental back. Um, I liked them quite a bit i thought they were really cool um but anything that was just sort of a basic jrpg with fun music and a fun story was something that i would enjoy for sure um i mean i even played lagoon and i went back to try to play lagoon um that game that game sucks i can't believe i beat that whole game as a kid like that was really like just that desperation of like i want every role-playing game so i played all of lagoon um and i just i tried to play it again and it's so bad um and uh uh uh, spike mcfang spike mcfang was a super fun game yeah. Although they, they really although cute. weirdly they apparently really cranked up the difficulty super hard for the for the U.S. version, and I played it back in the day, and I was just like, okay, this is fine, um, but I didn't have the patience to do it this time because it's like you come to an enemy and the enemy's hit points are just like ridiculous, like you just sit there like an idiot for a long time, mm-hmm. just like dinking away at these enemies' hit points. Um, because they just, they, 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 they were trying to stop me essentially from being able to rent their game, yeah, beat it and, and give it back. Yeah. Yeah. I think Lufia too, uh, people who love that series really love it. I think that when we did our top 25 RPGs, uh, Lufia two actually came up a fair amount. Uh, people yeah. especially loved the ancient cave setup, which had 99 randomly generated floors and was a really kind of entertaining challenge um and then it had a kind of a nice uh internal uh, i say i want a lore and that kind of thing with the sinistrals and everything uh mm-hmm. so yeah no like if you love lufia 2 um and really want to stand for it uh, i recommend leaving me a comment uh on twitter or uh dropping something in our comments because i mean we'd love to read it on the show um before we kind of wrap up our discussion, uh, I do want to take a moment to 
give a tip of the hat to the Western RPGs that did come out yes. on the Super Nintendo. Uh, Shadowrun was one of them. Did you ever play Shadowrun, Chris? You know, I have not. I have not played Shadowrun. Yes, we brought up Shadowrun during the Genesis console RPG quest, and we already mentioned in that one. It was rather different from the Genesis mm-hmm. one. It was more of a point-and-click RPG, but it was actually pretty remarkable uh, what a dense experience it was. It was very different from your kind of typical JRPG at that time. It uh, gave you a lot... Oh, no, it's just, it's funny to consider that because that would essentially be what would happen that somebody would get the license for something and then it's like, okay, we need a Genesis version and a Super Nintendo version. And they'd go to two different developers and say, okay, Mm -hmm. you do the Super Nintendo version, you do the Genesis version, and they're not talking and the games are wildly (laughs) different. And, uh, you know, because they just get to do whatever they want. It was an interesting time. Uh, Dungeon Master came out on the Super Nintendo, and I think Dungeon Master is kind of notable for being one of the influences behind Etrian Odyssey which I was talking about over on the uh, on Retronauts not too long ago. And then, uh, I mean, there's the usual Ultimas and Wizardries, which were, I mean, very much persisting in the early 90s. We're still, still doing pretty well. I, I, so mm-hmm. Ultima 7 was one of the RPGs that we put in our top 25 RPG list. And interestingly, uh, it got actually uh, ported over to the super nintendo but it it still had the gameplay of runes of virtue so uh maybe it missed out on the really frankly extremely ambitious like crazily ambitious uh open world gameplay of ultima 7 so and then finally a very bad version of the lord of the rings long before the movies came out god about there was a very bad rpg on the super nintendo yeah, I've heard that this is uh, not good. Nah. It's supposed to be terrible. It's a top-down action RPG, I believe. And uh, I think the AI was really bad, and the combat was bad. And it was... I could tell, even at the time, when I was reading the reviews of it, that it was pretty ugly and not great. Yeah, I remember I remember GamePro's review and how, like, washed out it looked. It looked so boring. And, fun fact, it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you don't say. Yeah, um... I think it's fair to say that Western RPGs don't have a tremendous legacy on the Super Nintendo, but it took a long time for Americans to be able to appreciate the legacy of Japanese RPGs on the Super Nintendo. But okay, let's talk about the legacy of the Super Nintendo. I mean, we already—I mean, we listed so many games, so many games got i mean classic rpg series got their start on the super nintendo everything from the really big ones like oh i don't know i mean chrono trigger came out i mean that's not technically a series but uh to some of the smaller ones like uh star ocean and tales of fantasia and there's so many amazing games in between uh, a lot of franchises kind of had their renaissance on the super nintendo everything from shimagami tensei uh to fire emblem super robot wars came up out of it now the super nintendo had such a massive massive influence in how we understand uh rpgs today and while rpgs the super nintendo's rpgs weren't tremendously popular in the u.s they were starting to break through a little bit I mean, I was Mm -hmm. certainly aware of things like Super Mario RPG. (laughs) Nintendo was getting through to me, however slowly. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I always said about Super Mario RPG. It's like, yes, Final Fantasy VII gets most of the credit for getting uh, a lot of, like, uninterested Westerners uh, interested in RPGs. But uh, Super Mario RPG takes a lot of that credit as well because, uh, number one, you have Mario. Number two, it's Battle System, which is 
you know, still used in many respects, like the whole action battle system. Uh, that was born in that game, and that really kind of helped people who weren't really that big into menu-based stuff say, "Oh, hey, there's this, here's a way I can interact with this with this genre." Yes, and not only that, but these RPGs hold up so well. They're so much fun to go they back do. to. Uh, they're paced better. They're very colorful. They have great battle effects. And in many res- some of them do, you know, the, mm. the really good ones, the do, really good ones, you know, I mean, there's it's just like everything else. Some of them the the flaws become quite apparent, um, whereas some of them, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, the, the ones that were really, really polished. But even the lesser known ones like Lufia 2 and Star Ocean still hold up really well, you know? Well, that's precisely it. I think that people are taking a second look back at this content now and saying, wow, gee, I, I really, you know, I want to play a game that was like Final Fantasy 3 and realizing, again, like, mm, it's not really possible to make another Final Fantasy 6, you know, at this point. Like, there's not going to be a new game that comes out that captures that. So was there something that I missed that didn't capture that? And and by the way, you know, speaking of games that people missed back in the day that they go back to, um, you know, and a game that we'll, I'll return to one more time before we, before we wrap this, uh, is that I really appreciate that when you guys at US Gamer did your top 25 uh, I think role-playing games. Uh, I believe that Final Fantasy V was on there, right? Dang yes. right. It was on that list. And uh, it's funny. It's just funny because, you know, as I had talked about in the book, the fact that Final Fantasy V... And, and again, Final Fantasy V came out in America a long time ago because it didn't actually take that long, um, you know, on a geological timescale for the game. It only took like... Five years? Seven, five years, seven years, I think. Mm-hmm. It came mm-hmm. out on PlayStation uh, in uh, 99, so it took seven years. But it's like, it's been out for a long time now. People have had a lot of chances to play it. There's a really good definitive Game Boy Advance edition, too, uh, with a much better translation. Um, but, like, you know, recently, whenever, whenever people do lists of best games, best RPGs, stuff like that, doesn't show up and even though final fantasy 6 is always either number one or number two you know it goes back and forth with chrono trigger um and uh and final fantasy 4 is always far up the list so so game informer magazine for their 300th issue they did a list of the 300 best games of all time final fantasy 6 was up in the 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 top 10 right Uh final fantasy 4 was high up in this list like it was on the list and and in a a high position of the best games ever four and six were way up at the top and five was not five didn't even make the 300 and it's so funny because like it is i argue that it's that it's actually the best of the three um even if you don't think that it's definitely at least as good as the other two you know but like because it missed that that particular window it didn't come Mm -hmm. out until the ps1 it's just forgotten about and i think a lot of people don't do a lot of going back and reassessing things they kind of remember what they remember from their childhood and if it didn't come out at that time there's not a whole lot of going back and reassessing what was actually good and did i miss anything at that time but if you like 16-bit role-playing games you probably should be going back and reassessing stuff like this because there's probably some stuff you would really like that you just didn't play yeah i did my controversial final uh best final fantasy list where i basically just ranked them and I put Final Fantasy V quite high up, and people were getting a little bit up in arms in it, and I was just kind of shrugging, going, dude, it 
has one of the best RPG systems of all time. I mean, it's extreme. Even though it's not my favorite RPG by or favorite Final Fantasy by quite a bit, um, I, I acknowledge how important it is. Oh, it really splits uh, the people who think that RPGs are entirely about storytelling and the people yes. who are way more interested in systems. Like it, that is so, the the, you- the wedge I think between those two. <laughs> it is definitely the wedge. But I think from Final character. But I think for me, uh, the tiebreaker between the PlayStation 1, maybe, and the Super Nintendo is that when push comes to shove, I'd rather go play a Super Nintendo RPG because PlayStation RPGs, you know, they're, they look pretty primitive these days. It depends on the RPG. I still mm. think uh, a Seven scant holds few, up. like, yeah, like, Breath of Fire 3 still holds up. I think Valkyrie it still Profile, looks fantastic. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think, like, Legend of Mana looks really nice on PlayStation oh, 1. I so don't bad, think though. It does not. It, yeah, I know. It does it's not like, play doesn't, well. doesn't play as well as, you know, I'd rather go back and play Trials of Mana again at this point with Absolutely. different characters. Yeah. Chris, you're our special guest. Uh, we'll give you the final word on the Super Nintendo and its RPG legacy. Yeah, I mean, I think if we're talking about games developed originally, you know, for it, because you could also, you know, you know, you could make, you could really make the case that like the the Wii U is the best RPG system ever because of the library of games that you could have gotten on Virtual Console um, through the through the Wii and the Wii U Virtual Console. Uh, but if you're talking about games that were developed specifically for it, I would say. It, Super Nintendo probably ends up being the winner, especially I think if you if you just look at if you look at the worldwide list of games and you count you know Dragon Quest V and Dragon Quest VI and Star Ocean and Tales of Fantasia all that stuff that didn't make it out here, um, you know you'd, you'd probably also have a really strong uh, argument for PS One and PS Two also, but but you know you're you're going to get to that. But for me, that was the, that's the golden age of role playing games for for sure. All right. Well, we'll be able to go through and assess the later consoles that came out. Uh, I am keeping a close eye on the PlayStation 2, which we might be given short shrift here. It might be a much better RPG console than we're giving it credit for. But we'll get to it. In the meantime, we still got to wrap up the 16-bit era. And we got... Uh, I, I think the next one we're going to do is we're probably going to lump bundle together the Jaguar, the 3DO, and the Neo Geo because I mean they they all uh, they're all interesting systems in their own right, and they have some interesting RPGs to kind of look at, but um, maybe don't warrant in uh, individual episodes on their yeah, own. Yeah, probably not. In fact, the Neo Geo only has one RPG on it. <laughs> Yeah. Great console. One RPG. But, <laughs> yeah, that's the end of our Super Nintendo R- uh, RPG console quest. Man, getting that one over, getting that one finished. Ah, that, what a mi- major milestone for this series. Very excited. Woo. So, uh, yeah, Great let's uh, wrap up right now. Okay, well, so we don't have a mailbag this week because we uh, kind of wiped our comments <laughs> on the site uh, the, last week, and as a result, uh, so that one went, took away all the comments from last week's episode, and I haven't gotten any like uh, emails or, or tweets. You should send them to me if you, if you have a, a, something that you want us to talk about on the show. Uh, usually at the end of the show, then you should do that. Send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a DM over on Twitter. But in the meantime, uh, I think that it's time to wrap up, and I think we can start with our special guest, Chris. What do you want to plug? 
Am I doing anything these days? Well, okay. So, nah, I mean, nothing. I certainly, I certainly would tell you that I'm going to be at Portland Retro Gaming Expo. A lot of people Ooh. are going to be at Portland Retro Gaming Expo, and oh, I, I certainly know. will be. Um, October, I believe, 18 through 20 in Portland, Oregon, and it is the it is the event of the year for the retro gaming go. crowd. It is it's the, a lot it of fun. is our it is our uh, uh, Lollapalooza. It is the, I don't know what it is. It is it's the it's the uh, what would be it's 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 Burning Man. It's the Burning <laughs> Man. For, you, you, you have to you've 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 just got to be there. Um, it, it's not in a desert, uh, and we we do take showers. Well, I would say at least fifty percent. Hilariously, I just got back from Burning Man, so. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's that, but it's indoors. But it's retro, and it's nothing. And it's nothing like it yeah, at all. Absolutely. Um, but it's the. It's the. But you gotta go. Um. It, so it's it's uh, it's great. I'm gonna have a panel on um, uh, collecting uh, Japanese import games. Whether that means uh, advice about going to Akihabara or advice about doing it in the comfort of your own computer chair. Um. And uh, I'll be um, tabling with Boss Fight Books. Uh, so if you want to get a copy of Final Fantasy V or my book Power Up. Uh, and have it signed by me and meet me and say hello to me. Uh, that'll be a thing you can do at Portland Retro Gaming Expo. Uh, and also, there's like a million other things to do. It is really totally worth traveling for. It's a, a huge, mind-bogglingly huge retro gaming event, uh, and it's just great. Yeah, Portland is one of my favorite cities, honestly. It has amazing drinking. It has ground yeah. control, the arcade, great hiking, yep. very walkable city, very scenic. Um the weather in October isn't the the greatest, but that's okay because you'll be hanging out in a convention center. And it'll be indoors. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, and it's so much I've fun. And it's so much fun to do the rounds of all the different stands and see like all of the retro gems that you're going to be able to find. Uh, there there are a lot of great finds there if you're a retro enthusiast, and then you get to play a lot of uh, classic games as well. I took part mm-hmm. in a Smash Brothers tournament, got my ass utterly handed to me, but that was totally fine. <laughs> there's, uh, it, there's like tons of arcade games. There's tons of console stuff to play. There are more vendors at Portland than I think any other convention. It's like 300 vendors. Wow. There's tons of stuff to buy at every price level. You know, I mean, there's just, there's something for everybody. Uh, there's three panel tracks that run all weekend, um, and there and the live auction is the best live auction. Um, uh, so starting last year, I really want to want to hype this up. They do the live auction, um, but there's actually they they do it in a ballroom and there's a cash bar. So like you don't have to like cram yourself into a panel you know room like watching people buy hundred dollar video game signs or thousand dollar you know arcade games or whatever. You can actually go and like drink and like have fun um, and and just sort of hang out. And watch the auction happen it's super it was it was tons of fun last year so i'm really looking forward to it this year portland you should go okay axel blog is a u.s gamer podcast you can find us on itunes stitcher wherever podcasts are sold if you enjoy the show can i recommend that you leave us a review having a positive review brightens our day and also helps the visibility of the podcast and if you are enjoying the podcast and you want us to talk about something, you want to communicate with us, it's rather easy. Just send me a DM on Twitter. I already said the underscore catbot. Send me an email at cat.bail at usgamer.net. Follow all of the US Gamer social channels. And follow, of course, Chris Kohler on Twitter as well at Coben Heat. That's K-O-B-U-N-H-E-A-T. Okay. We're continuing on into the holiday season. We're going to have a lot of RPGs. 
I think, Nadia, next week we're going to have to do our fall RPG preview, which is going to be very exciting. Yeah, it's about that time of year, isn't it? It is about that time of year. And then also, uh, we've got to get Eric Van Allen back on the show because he's been playing Greedfall, and I'm sure he has a lot of thoughts on it. Probably does. Okay. Thanks again to Chris for coming on the show, and of course to Nadia. And for Nadia for myself, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy adventuring.